0: If you have your Bibles, please, take, please turn in them to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We've been studying the life of David uh, for, uh, for a month or two, for a couple months now, and we are now to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, two weeks ago, we looked closely at the famous David and Bathsheba saga when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, we saw David, the covenant king, the man after God's own heart, the man God himself chose to shepherd his people Israel, fall tragically to temptation and sin. David's just like the rest of us. The kingdom is not safe in his hands. David in that text saw Bathsheba and he took her. David knowingly and intentionally committed adultery, which led to David seeking to cover his sin, by deceiving Uriah, her husband. And when that didn't work, David again tried to cover his sin by having Uriah murdered and the innocent men that happened to be with him while they were fighting the Ammonites. And at the end of chapter 11, David seems to have been successful. He seems to have gotten away with it. There's only a few folks that might know, and they can't do anything about it. Now, this saga closely mirrors... The fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, where they saw the fruit, they took it, and they ate it, and they also sought to cover their sin. But like David, they will not get away with it. God sees, and God knows, and God will judge. What David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. But even in the midst of God's judgment, there is the hope of the gospel, You see, if you were to go back to Genesis 3, the gospel was preached even there. As Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden, God tells them that there will come a Messiah from the line of Eve who will one day crush the serpent and rescue God's people. And even here in 2 Samuel, in the midst of God's judgment, the gospel is going to be preached to David. Though he's a sinner, though he's condemned and guilty, God's promise of grace and hope are unwavering. That original gospel message of a coming Messiah and King will not be stopped. It will not be thwarted or hindered even in the midst of David's treacherous sin. The hope we have is that God's promises and God's grace and the gospel will prevail. So as we read this text... Let's look at the gospel according to 2 Samuel. That's my title this morning, the gospel according to Samuel. So let's look at verses 1 through 7 first and see the confrontation of Nathan. The confrontation of Nathan. I'm going to break this into four sections as we look at this. So look at the confrontation of Nathan. Look at verses 1 through 7 with me. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men of a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor, man, the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Now, as we look at this, we don't know how much time has lapsed between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. But we do know that it is, at the, but what we do know, do know is that at God's appointed time, the Lord sends Nathan to confront David over the wickedness regarding Uriah and Bathsheba. So Nathan goes to David with an account that requires David's judgment. Now, some people like to say this is a parable, but nowhere are we told that this is a parable or a made-up story. It was the king's job to administer justice and judge the cases of all of Israel. There was no separation of powers in Israel where a Supreme Court would render judgments on cases and that the king would simply uh, administer the executive duties. In fact, it all fell on the king. So here, Nathan comes to David and asks him to render judgment on what could have been a real case before the court. And I want you to notice a couple of things that stand out in Nathan's case. First, notice there's a huge financial difference between the two men. One man had a great many flocks and herds. The poor man had one lamb. And it wasn't a lamb that had been born from his flocks. No, it was a lamb that he had to save up and buy. It was his one lamb. Second, notice how one man is characterized by giving. He's a giver. And the other man is a taker. One who takes. The poor man loved his ewe lamb. He brought it up. It was part of his family. He provided for the lamb. He gave it love. He gave it a home. The poor man is described as eating and drinking and laying with this lamb that he loved that was a part of his intimate family. Now these were three luxuries that Uriah had refused to enjoy When he came home from the front lines of the battle, David had told him to go and eat and lay with his wife, and Uriah refused. The rich man, on the other hand, had a guest, an unnamed traveler, a burden to his busy schedule that must be fed. The guest wasn't worth one of the animals from his many flocks and herds, so he took the lamb from the poor man. The rich man took this lamb just as David saw Bathsheba and took her. It's third, notice how God's word subtly rouses the, the righteous indignation and anger of the king. David is greatly angered against the man and pronounces his judgment in verses 5 and 6. So pay attention, especially some of our lawyers and others in here, as, as David pronounces his judgment as the judge. He says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So, David's judgment here, David renders his judgment, and I want you to note that it is right and wrong at the same time. David is right. And he is wrong at the same time. What do, what do I mean? First, David is right that the man must restore the lamb fourfold as he stole the property of another. That is exactly what the law of Moses says regarding stealing of livestock. You must restore it fourfold. You steal one sheep, you must pay back restitution four sheep. That's exactly what the law commands. Second, David is right in judging the motives. Of this rich man. He says the rich man showed no compassion. He showed no mercy. He had no pity. He had no hesed. No covenant faithfulness towards the poor man. But David is wrong in this regard. Stealing a sheep is not worthy of capital punishment. It's just not. A sheep's life is not worth the life of a man. The Bible is clear about that. Right? So David is wrong in that regard. David swears an oath on the name of the Lord that this man deserves death. Notice that David is treating the lamb as though it's a person. Something he had not done for Bathsheba. She was just property to be taken. David treats this lamb better than he treated Bathsheba. She, this man deserves to die because of the way he treated a lamb right? It's presented as a store. It's presented as a person in this case, a daughter to the poor man. It is anger that calls for death, not justice. David is angry. Maybe it is his own conscience. The hypocrisy and irony is incredible. It is the king and judge of this case who has done what is worthy of death. It is David who has done what is worthy of death, not this rich man who has simply taken a lamb. Fourth, notice the verdict of God in light of David's own verdict. Nathan says, after David says, let's get our sword, boys, and go administer justice, Nathan points his finger and he says, you are the man. The courage it would take for Nathan to do that is incredible. You are the man, David. You yourself, David, have pronounced your own judgment. Now, here, notice what's happening in the text. David immediately finds himself with the sword of God's word against his own throat. The sword of God's word is against David's throat. David had no idea that Nathan was the most dangerous man he had ever confronted. It wasn't Saul or Goliath or Abner, or the kings of the Ammonites, or the kings of the Philistines. It's this little prophet armed with God's very word, and Nathan slowly drew the sword. David is unaware, and he renders David helpless. Now that is the power of God's word in our own lives, and in our own consciences. God's Word is what cuts through every justification we would make for our sin, every lie that we would believe, and it lays bare the truth. It pulls the veil back from our eyes and shows us our hearts and our motives. Remember what Hebrews says, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, and all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. And I want you to see that right here in David's life, this is grace. It is always God's grace when he confronts us over our sin. God's word is grace to us in this situation notice secondly the consequences of sin we've seen the confrontation look at the consequences look at the end of verse 7 through verse 12 says thus says the Lord the God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. From this point, the Lord presents his case against David. David. No more stories about lambs. No, this is God's story about David. Notice, it is the Lord who has graciously raised up David for his purposes. It is the Lord who graciously rescued David from Saul. It is the Lord who graciously set David as king over the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And it was all of grace. It wasn't because David deserved it. God had given David anything and everything that he could have ever needed or wanted. And look what God says. God says, if that wasn't enough, David, all you had to do would ask. If you would have just asked, I would have given you more. God is saying here that David believed the lie that God would not be even more gracious if he had but asked. David scorned the grace that had been shown to him. David believed that lesser things could satisfy him more than the Lord i want want to ask you, how prone are you to believe that? That's the major lie of sin in all of our lives. That lesser things can satisfy the longings of our heart. And now verse 9 is God's judgment. God says, you have despised the word of the Lord. You have despised me. Listen, sin is always simply more than disobeying God's word. Sin is always more than just telling a lie, or having a lustful thought, or being greedy. It's always more than than simply disobeying God's word. It is despising the one who has spoken. God's word is simply a reflection of his own character and nature, and to despise his word is to despise who he is. It is to reject God himself as good and gracious and glorious. Like I've said many times, sin isn't simply law-breaking, it is law-making. It is saying, I am actually God, I actually make the laws that should be, should be obeyed. Sin is substituting myself in the place of God. It is idolatry of the highest order. And God continues his indictment. He says David struck down Uriah by using the sword of the Ammonites, took his wife, and now look at the consequences. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, and I will do it before all Israel. We see exactly how all of this we will see exactly how this will come true in the coming chapters with Absalom. Now here's just a friendly reminder to you that I frequently tell my children, I'll tell you as my pastoral children, we can choose our sin and rebellion, and we do. We can choose our sin and rebellion, but you cannot choose your consequences. You can choose sin and rebellion, but you cannot choose your consequences. Seniors, remember that as you go out into this wide world. You can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. David could not have imagined how that stroll on his rooftop would have led to this moment. We never can predict the consequences of our sin. And then notice third, the confession of David. The confession of David. Look at verse 13. How simple and how profound. Nathan says, you are the man. And this is how David responds. He gets one sentence. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. How simple and how significant is that sentence? And that is the raw truth. All sin is ultimately against the Lord. Now, certainly there are people involved here, right? People have been sinned against. But sin is always directly in relation to God. And David knows it. David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against the other innocent men who died needlessly in the battle. But David sinned, most importantly, against the Lord. And that is why his confession is so simple and so clear. This is what confession and repentance looks like. It is saying, in essence, God is right. I am not. I am the man, as Nathan said, I am guilty and deserving of God's judgment. Now, let me point something out here, because sometimes this troubles people. Nathan, uh, uh, David's simple sentence here troubles people. It might trouble you. For some of us, we expect more pomp and circumstance. We expect David's to be weeping for weeks or months. We expect sackcloth and ashes. We expect penance to be done. Break out the rosary, say your Hail Marys. We expect all of these things to be done to demonstrate genuine repentance. We tend to think the more exuberant and emotional and external the display of repentance, the more real and sincere it must be. Can I just tell you, that's not true. It's not about the outward expressions of it. Now, certainly there can be, but that's not the gauge of sincerity. Our repentance isn't gauged as though external displays guarantee the sincerity of it. It's a matter of truth. A matter of God's word and a matter of our hearts. Remember Esau. Esau sought repentance with tears. and external display and guess what? He did not find it. King Saul sought repentance. He did not find it. But David finds it just like the tax collector in the temple. Who also had a very short and simple confession. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. David writes in Psalm 51, as a reflection of this moment, we read it earlier. David simply says there, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and I have done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's what confession and repentance looks like. God, you're right. I'm the man. I have done it. I'm not going to weasel out of it, cover it, hide it, run from it. I've done it. That's what genuine confession is. It need only be admitting that God is right and you are not. Now let's read the end of verses 13 through 25. And let's see what happens after David confesses his sin. It says, And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because you have done this deed and have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child, and Uriah's, that, that Uriah's wife bore to David. And he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do to himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, He is. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went out of the house of the Lord, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and when asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, at the end of verse 13, you have the most surprising verse of the chapter. The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Are you kidding me? The only person in this chapter that deserves death is David. The law commands it. The law demands that he die. David saw, took, lay, and murdered, and many innocent people have died. He did it intentionally. The law was clear. And again... This goes to the very heart of sin being primarily against God. God alone can issue judgment, and God alone can extend grace. And this is the theological truth that drives the remainder of this chapter. God executes judgment according to his own nature, and he graciously extends grace according to his nature. And now we see the mingling of grace and consequences. Though there is grace, there is consequences. Because David has scorned the Lord, the child who has been born shall die. David is freely forgiven while the cost and consequences are extremely high. And Bathsheba will bear it as well. An innocent child must die. Now does that strike your sensibilities? Do you recoil from those words? David gave the enemies of the Lord an occasion to blaspheme and mock God. And God strikes his heir. That is a stark reminder to us that God is God. And God will do whatever God pleases. As Paul says in Romans 9, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? But in light of all of this, hear me, this is the point of the sermon. There is the scarlet thread of the gospel woven into this very text. This child is a substitute for David. This goes to the very heart of the gospel. You see, our hope of salvation today is because another innocent heir of David has been given as a substitute for our sin. God struck him instead of striking us. We are freely forgiven like David as Christ the substitute bears the cost. The riches of God's mercy and grace that we receive Are because, as Isaiah said, that Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. You see, that is the only hope we have. There is consequences. And then finally, notice the character of God. Notice the character of God. When we read verses 15 through 23, the character of God screams out. In these verses, we see God fulfilling his word by striking God's son. But we also see something of David's understanding of the character of God God is just and God is gracious. And all of of David's actions here are based on those two premises. Look at what David does. When, Dave, when God strikes David's child with sickness, David seeks God on behalf of the child. David fasts. David prays. David humbles himself by laying on the ground. He doesn't eat. He does this to the point that his servants are afraid that David will harm himself once he hears the child dies. But something happens. When the child dies, David does the opposite. In verses 20 and following, David arises. David washes, he anoints himself, he changes clothes. He goes into the house of the Lord and he worships and then he eats. His servants are baffled. They must know why and the answer is found in verse 22. Look at David's understanding of the character of God. David says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me? That the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Do you see it? Listen closely as I close. Why does David do all of these things while the child is living and then these other things while the child has died? Because David fundamentally understands that God is just and God is gracious. And just as, God had, just as God had pardoned David from his sins, God could have relented and spared David's son. Because David understands that God is, and his very heart, gracious. And even if God doesn't, God is still righteous, and good, and worthy to be worshipped. Now, does that drive your theological understanding? That God is just, and God is good, And even if God does not spare my child, He is still worthy of being worshipped. As Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. David will one day go to to his son, even if his son doesn't come back to him. Now that is gospel hope. Hope that God will ultimately do what is right and good. Listen, our ultimate hope is based on our understanding of the very character and nature of God. Hear me, this is it. The most plain, clear, and explicit display of the character of God is found where? At Calvary. At the cross. It is at the cross. It is found in His Son, Jesus the Christ. Who showed us the very heart of God. On the very cross on which Christ died. He showed the righteousness and justice of God for sin. That there must be consequences. And he showed at the same time the love and grace of God. For rebel sinners like us. Who welcomes rebels at God's table. By laying the wrath of God on his very own son. David's heir Jesus was not spared. Instead, the Father lovingly gave him up for us all as our substitute and Savior. Now the rest of this chapter serves as the conclusion to this David and Bathsheba and Ammonite conflict, and there is hope. Look at verses 24 and 25 as I close. Look what it says there. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. God's covenant promises continue. In the midst of all this chaos and sin, in God's providence, Bathsheba and David are married, and Solomon is born, and Christ will come through the midst of all of this sin, through Solomon's line. God's promises and grace will prevail, and that is the hope we have in the gospel That sin will not have the final word in our lives. The gospel has the final word. May God add a blessing to the preaching of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see the grace of the gospel to rebel sinners like us at the cross. Father, David deserved death, but he found pardon through a substitute. So, Father, may we see the gospel on every page of the Bible... As it all points to Jesus, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.